Good morning. It is good to see you all. Are you doing well? God is good, amen? We're going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke because we have reached that time of year when we're going to be talking about Christmas in our sermons. So let me just tell you something about this while you're turning to Luke chapter 2. For pastors, for preachers, every December, Christmas comes. That's true for the rest of you too, I understand that. But every December when Christmas comes, uh, generally we dedicate the month to celebrating Christmas together because so much to, Chris- to celebrate. Easter is awesome. We have one Sunday we preach the same story every Easter Sunday, but it's only one sermon. Every Christmas I preach four or five Christmas sermons, and because of that, I stop every year and go, man, what did I preach on last year? Oh, look, the Christmas story. What did I preach on the year before that? Oh, the Christmas story. And I did it four or five times. And today, we're going to look at it from an angle that I'm not sure I have ever even thought of it from, let alone preached on. And uh, we're going to begin with a historical account. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, Luke is going to start telling us the Christmas story. And he makes a point of setting it in its historical context. Guys, as we know, there is so much wrapped up in Christmas culturally. So many ideas and thoughts and traditions and stories and songs. Uh, It's fascinating to stop and think about the lyrics to some of the Christmas songs that people sing and go, wow, that has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus or his birth. Uh, So many of the things that we do with gifts and trees and elves and snowmen and all of that kind of stuff that is all about Christmas for us is not really related to the Christmas story. It's not really set historically. We have stories of Charlie Brown picking out a Christmas tree and there's a Grinch story that we're all very familiar with. There's a little kid dressed up in pink pajamas looking like a bunny that we all get to see at Christmas time. We find out that um, Harry Bailey lived a wonderful life every year at Christmas time. And all of that stuff, or the vast majority of it, is solidly fictional. And uh, we sort of mix up the fictional stuff and the historical stuff. So I love the fact that Luke goes out of his way to make the point that this is an historical event. This takes place in the context of history. Uh, It's about, uh, uh, the story we're going to see today is about a man who claimed to be God. And by the way, his name wasn't Jesus. The year is 63 BC, and a child is born in Rome. His name is Octavian. His father dies when Octavian is four years old. His mother quickly remarries, and the new stepfather doesn't want anything to do with the kid, and so the kid is shipped off to be raised by his grandmother, 
And the grandmother of Octavian happens to be the sister of a guy named Julius Caesar. So Octavian is raised in the royal household. And um, Julius Caesar later adopted him and made him the sole heir of his fortune and his political authority. So Octavian really lucks out. Now, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar's Senate assassinates him, right? If you remember anything from high school history, you remember this. If you didn't pay attention in history class, but you did pay attention in English class, you remember this from Julius Caesar, the Shakespearean play, right? And he is knifed by his uh, senators on what day? The Ides of March, which is March 15th. March 15th, 44 BC, Julius Caesar is assassinated. At that point, Octavian is 19 years old, and he assumes the throne. Now, he's smart enough to know that at 19, there is no way he has any idea how to rule this empire. But he's not about to give up his power, and so what he does is he creates what is called a triumvirate, three rulers who will share the rulership of Rome. And Rome is such a vast empire by this point that literally there are three major wars going on separately in the Roman Empire in separate regions at the same time that he takes the throne. And so he creates this triumvirate and there are two other guys in it with him. One guy is a guy named Marcus Lepidus and the other guy is a name you've heard, Mark Antony. So you have Octavian, Lepidus and Antony, and they are serving together as the rulers of Rome. Well, if you're going to have three emperors, guess what you're going to have? A civil war. So it's not long before there is a civil war that breaks out. Lepidus is the first one who's eliminated. He's killed in battle. And that leaves Octavian and Mark Antony um, vying for control of the Roman Empire. Mark Antony realizes he probably can't win this on his own, so he goes down to Egypt where he has a girlfriend by the name of Cleopatra. And Antony and Cleopatra come together, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, right? <laughs> and they, they join their power and go against Octavian. And Octavian wins the battle resulting in Antony and Cleopatra, a la Romeo and Juliet, committing suicide together, leaving only Octavian now to rule the Roman Empire. And now that he is the sole ruler, he decides he wants to solidify his power and his control. And so he changes his name from Octavian, and he calls himself Caesar Augustus. The name Caesar Augustus is a bizarre name, a strange name. They, they had never had a ruler who called himself Augustus because the, the term, the Latin term Augustus speaks of deity. It's a name given to the gods. It has to do with your transcendence and your uh, all-powerfulness. And so uh, he calls himself Caesar Augustus, the all-powerful God-man, the ruler of all that is. And he takes 
the throne, claiming not only to be the most powerful man on earth, but claiming also to be a god. That was B.C. 30. Now, fast forward 30 years. Caesar Augustus is still ruling. He has changed the whole structure of the government. There is no longer a senate. It is no longer a republic. It is an empire, and he is the emperor, and there's no one else ruling with him. He is completely in charge of every aspect of Roman life, and he rules with an iron fist. He controls the economy. He controls the military. He controls the religious life. He controls the political life. Everyone in Rome is under his thumb. And he determines that it is time for a census because they rule so many um, different um, former kingdoms that are now under the rule of Rome that they need to bring people back together in their clans so that he can measure the size of clans so that he can get a sense of where there is power and so that he can tax everyone to honor him. So this is a tax to honor Caesar Augustus. And he sends out a decree and issues this decree that everyone has to go to their hometown where their... um, where their forefathers are from, so that they can be counted and so that they can be taxed. And that is where Dr. Luke begins his story. He makes it clear to us from the beginning, there is no make-believe characters here. This guy, Jesus, that he's about to tell us about is every bit as real as Mark Antony or Julius Caesar or Cleopatra. And he fits right into the story in history. And so Luke sets the stage in history. It's not a work of fiction. It's an historical account that we're reading. Everything we talk about today is going to be a fact, just as real as those names from history that we talked about. But we're about to meet a new king, Not a mighty man riding in on a horse with pomp and circumstance. Not a rich man born into wealth and privilege and power and authority. But a baby lying in a feeding trough, shivering in the cold. The contrast is strong. On the one hand, Caesar Augustus the little man who makes himself to be a big God. And on the other hand, Jesus Christ, the big God who becomes a little man for our sake. And the stage is set. And so begins Luke's story of the King of Kings. Not in a throne room, not even in a manger, that comes later, but in the womb of a young peasant girl accompanied by a young man named Joseph. A man who is not the child's father, but who will serve the role of daddy in this child's life. And he would devote his life to playing the unique role that God had chosen for him to play. And in all of my years of preaching Christmas sermons, I'm not sure I've ever preached a Christmas sermon from the perspective of Joseph. But today... I want us to just focus our attention on Joseph and look at the story through his eyes and understand what was happening through his perspective. Because he is a small part of the narrative, and yet he is a huge part of the plan of God. He's a man who goes largely unnoticed. If it wasn't for your nativity scene at home, you might not even remember that he exists. In fact, you could set up your nativity scene at home 
And if you left out the camels and the sheep and the oxen, people would go, hey, what happened? But if you left out Joseph, probably no one would notice. He's, he's a role player. If you get chosen to play Joseph in the church Christmas play, it's awesome. No lines to memorize. It's great. Right? That's Joseph. But as we launch into this Christmas season, we're not going to ignore Joseph because God didn't ignore Joseph. In fact, Joseph played a massive role in what God was trying to do. Let's continue reading. We're in Luke chapter 2 and verse 3. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because it was a house of the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and they wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Set the stage. As one man claims dominion over the whole known world, as one man demands to be honored through taxation by everyone in his empire, as one man claims to be not only a king but a god, the one true God sets in motion the, the most important movement in human history that the world would ever see. And in contrast to the little man who wants to be a god, we have a big god who becomes not even a little man but a fetus, a zygote, s someone so insignificant at first as to be completely unnoticed and in fact unnoticeable. And he becomes that. Now, Mary by this point has already received the crazy news and she is grappling with it. She is trying to wrap her mind around this thing. She knows that she is pregnant by now. Um, and yet, she's a virgin. Now, that's unusual. And she's a little freaked out by it, but she is visited by an angel, and the angel explains to her, oh, don't be freaked out. It's not that big a deal. It's just that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be with child, and your child will be God. I see. And so she's been grappling with that. And it was hard enough for her to wrap her mind around that idea, but guess what? She has to tell her boyfriend. And it, just think of all the times she rehearsed telling her boyfriend. Hey, Joseph, um, you know, it's funny, but you're not going to believe this, but, right? She's got to figure out how to do that. And I say Joseph is her boyfriend. That's really a strange term, doesn't really fit. The fact is, things were not done the way they are now with the whole dating and marriage concept. Uh, what you had was basically three stages. You had an engagement stage in which the parents really met together and came to an agreement about a, a son and a daughter that would be matched up. And there were financial agreements to be made. And all of that was done in the engagement process. Once you were officially engaged, it began the process of betrothal, which was generally a one-year period, and you were legally married at that point. 
The only way to get out of a betrothed relationship was to file for divorce and go through the legal system to do it. So very different than the way that we look at engagement today where we go, we're planning a wedding, we're trying to figure this out, and if it doesn't work out between us, we'll cut it off. That's not how it worked then. Once you were betrothed, you were legally married, but the girl continued to live in her father's house and the young man was responsible to use that year to prepare to be able to provide for his family. He often used that time to build a house or to build an addition onto his parents' house. He often used that to get his job situated and get some money saved and do all that kind of stuff. And so she was his wife. Legally, she was under his authority. Legally, he was responsible for her. And legally, the only way for him to get out of that would be to divorce her. So they are betrothed, and she's got to tell Joseph that she's pregnant. Now, somehow, some way, she sits down and tells him the story. Now, if you were Joseph, how would you receive that news? If you were Joseph and you heard a story like that, what would you do? Well, obviously, it's a lie. You, virgins don't get pregnant. So I don't know what you take me for, Mary, but I'm not an idiot. I know I haven't been with you. That means you've been with somebody else. And now you're not only going to cheat on me, but you're going to lie to me about it and blame God? Man, that takes some chutzpah. I can't believe this. So he, he knows it's not true. He knows it's not true. Just like you would know it wasn't true if you were in his shoes. He knows it can't be true. And so she has committed adultery. There are three options that he has. Option number one, the law says he has the right to have her stoned to death publicly. That's the punishment for adultery. Option number two, he can, if he chooses to be merciful, send her away with a certificate of divorce. He can divorce her and send her away to some other place where she can make up some story and try to start a new life together, together with this child that is obviously not his, and he has that option if he wants to be merciful. And option number three, he could marry her, which is, of course, completely ridiculous. So what does Joseph do? Let's go to Matthew. We're going to be going back and forth between Matthew and Luke. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, just maybe 30 pages to your left. Go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to pick this up in verse 18. This is Matthew's telling of the story. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. I love how Matthew just says that like it's a normal thing. Verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Choice number two. That's what he chose to do. He planned to send her away secretly. This is a good guy. This is a man of honor. This is a man who has the right to have her put to death, but he mercifully wants to give her an opportunity at life. But he's not going to marry this woman who is not only cheating on him, but still lying about it. So that's not an option for him. So he's going to send her away. He must be hurt. He must be devastated. 
He must be confused. But he decides to do the merciful thing, give her a certificate of divorce, and give her a chance at a decent life. That was his plan. But have you noticed in life that sometimes when you have a plan, God has another plan? God had another plan. Pick it up in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This was not the way Joseph planned his life, but this was the way God had planned the salvation of mankind from before the foundation of the world. And once in a while, my plan and God's plans are running at cross purposes, and when they crash, something's got to give, right? Either God's plan is going to be lived out in my life, or I'm going to refuse God's plan and run in the other way. Well, in the book of Isaiah, which is where we get verse 23 there, quoting from Isaiah, where it says that exactly this is going to happen, that a virgin will be with child, and then they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God. God with us. And he will be born according to the prophecies in Bethlehem. But Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth. Now, I'm sure that you're all very familiar with the map of ancient Israel, but just in case you forgot, um, Nazareth and Galilee are about 80 miles apart. So uh, there's this prophet named Micah who had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, 80 miles from Joseph's house. So the one true God has a situation on his hands. The prophets have already decreed that he will be born in Bethlehem, but this couple lives in Nazareth. It's an 80-mile journey. So what does he do? The one true God, like a masterful puppeteer, uses the false god, Caesar Augustus, as a tool and brings this all about to accomplish his will. Caesar one day gets this great idea out of God knows where that I will have a census and make everybody return to their hometown, which happens to be the ancestral home of not only Joseph, but also Mary. And so they have to go to Bethlehem, and they will have to go to Bethlehem at this specific time. So just around the time that Mary is ready to give birth, Joseph had to take his young bride all the way to Bethlehem. It's an 80-mile journey. Now you think, well, 80 miles, okay, that's doable. 80 miles is basically Duarte to Big Bear. And there was no Uber. They went on foot. I know you've seen the pictures and Mary's always on a donkey, but just, I hate to spoil this for you, but those are not real pictures. Those are not actual photographs. And, and there's nothing in scripture that says Mary was on a donkey. As far as we know, they did what everybody else would have done in that situation. They walked. Now, it is one thing to walk 80 miles. I don't want to think about doing that. 
But for those of you ladies who have given birth and you know what it is to be nine months pregnant, See, there are these stages, as I understand it, in pregnancy. There's the early stage where there's morning sickness, right? And then there's a middle stage where it's, boy, I'm tired all the time, and look, I'm getting big. And then there's the final stage, which is my ankles are the size of the Goodyear blimp, right? And that was the stage in which she walked 80 miles to pay taxes. (laughs) What a joy, But think about it, we always think about it from her point of view, appropriately so, but think about it from Joseph's point of view. This is his homecoming event. This is Joseph going back to his hometown where all of his relatives will gather. You see, everybody from the household of David, wherever they've been spread to in the whole Roman Empire, has to return to Bethlehem. This is family reunion for everyone. And so the whole family, all the relatives, all the distant cousins, everybody's coming into town and everybody's gonna do their catching up and Joseph is coming into town with a wife that he has not been married to for long and she is about to give birth. And it doesn't take a genius to do the math and go, hey, wait a second. And this is not 21st century Southern California. This is a different culture and a different time. In fact, Joseph would have been mocked and belittled for not, have, have, not having had her put to death already. And so I don't know exactly what happened, but I can just imagine him thinking about how he's going to tell people what's going on when they say to him, hey, Cousin Joe, uh, what's up with the pregnant girl? <laughs> and... His answer is, um, no, I know it sounds weird. You don't understand. She's actually a virgin. Um, And it's the Holy Spirit who put the baby inside of her. Oh, why didn't you say so? I mean, seriously, dude, please don't tell me you are buying that ridiculous story. No, no, it's really true. I know because I had a dream and an angel spoke to me in a dream. Oh, now I understand. So he's picturing this. I don't know. The scripture doesn't say. I have no idea. I don't know if he ever even went and saw his ancestors on this trip. If it was me, I might have skipped that. What we do know is this, that he didn't stay with family which would be the only way anybody would do this in those days. He didn't stay with family. Uh, And and we don't know if it's because he didn't want to be with the family or because after finding out the family didn't want him to be there. We don't know. We do know that there was no room for them in an inn. We don't know anything about that story. Get this picture of a terrible, wicked innkeeper out of your mind because there's no innkeeper in the Bible. It just mentions that the inn was booked. The inn was full. And when you picture the inn, if you're picturing Doubletree Suites, don't. Because in those days, the, probably the better picture is an Old West saloon. That's how the inns were in those days. It was a drinking house downstairs with some rooms upstairs that doubled as a brothel. And decent folks didn't go to these places. But even there... There was no hospitality for them. Even there, there was no 
opportunity. We have this ridiculous story about how she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit while still being a virgin. It's a ridiculous story. And we have them having nowhere to stay. And all we know, we don't know where this stable is that they went to. We don't know if it's behind the inn or if it's somewhere else out in the countryside. But somehow they find a stable and they say, we could stay here. You know why? The animals don't ask questions. And they have this opportunity now and they go to this stable in Bethlehem. Now, before morning, a child will be born in that stable. He'll be laid in a feeding trough. There will be, as you know from the story, and we'll get to all this this month, but there will be angels who appear in the sky. There will be a message from those angels. There will be shepherds who come to worship the boy. There will, uh, there will be wise men eventually who show up, magi from the east, who eventually show up to be a part of this and somehow manage to get into your nativity scene. And they'll be bearing gifts. Mary has such an amazing experience with this that she writes a spectacularly beautiful song that we still read today at Christmas time. There's gonna be a little drummer boy who shows up. Wait a second, that's another story. Don't. <laughs> and... Everybody gets a part in this wonderful scene, but if you were to take Joseph and stick him behind the stable, nobody would notice. His part is really small. He doesn't have anything to say. He's just doing what he's been told to do by God. You would think he would get some honor. You would think he would get some praise, but it doesn't work out that way. In fact, after Jesus' childhood we never see Joseph again. And we're not even told what happened to him. We're left to guess. And almost everybody guesses he must have died because Mary and the brothers are prominent in, in Jesus' adulthood, but Joseph is nowhere to be found. We don't know what happened to him. We have no idea. So insignificant a character does he seem to us that it's okay that he just disappears and we don't even ask why or what happened or where he went. But before he fades away from view... He's in another important scene. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. This is after the Magi have visited. Verse 13, now when they, the Magi, had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Here we go again. Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. It had been a while since Joseph had first been visited in a dream, mind you, by an angel. He didn't like the plan then. It wasn't the plan he had for his life, but he had been obedient. He had done exactly, exactly what God had told him to do in the dream. And now there's a second dream, a second appearance of an angel in a dream. And this time the message is different. The message is straightforward and simple. Get up right now and run as fast as you can. 
Gather up your family, take whatever you can carry, and head for Egypt as fast as you can because the government is coming to kill your son. And so he has to get up and take his family. Now imagine his thinking when he has this dream. It would be legitimate for him to say something like this. Wait one second. I am right in the middle of God's will. I have done exactly what I was told to do, even though it was costly to me. I have followed the script exactly. I have faced the humiliation of it. I have faced the pain of it. I have faced the cost of it. I have done exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I know that I am right in the center of God's will right now. And you're telling me that I'm not going to be blessed? You're telling me that I have to face more persecution? You're telling me things are going to get worse before they get better? And the angel is saying, yeah, God has not finished with you yet. And your family is in danger, so it's time to uproot your life and run as fast as you can. Man, what an intrusion. There's a Greek phrase to describe this kind of thing. It's, it is, let's see if I can pronounce it right, pain in the butt. This is a major pain in the butt. All of a sudden, he has to, he's already adjusted his life dramatically. And now he has to make this shift. This is not what he signed up for. Hear that again. This is not what he signed up for. Except it kind of is. Because he chose to be a follower of God. And when you choose to be a follower of God, God gets the steering wheel of your life. And sometimes when you're a follower of God, God is going to take you to a place that you would have never decided to go on your own, a place you don't understand, a place you don't want to go. And yet God, who has a perfect plan for your life, is going to take you there. He just didn't realize that God was going to do this with his life. So he had a choice. Am I going to flee or am I going to trust and obey? And he decided to trust and obey because it turned out that following God was going to be much different than he thought. But believe it or not, it got way worse. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. You get this, right? Herod wants to put this newborn king to death. When he finds out that the family has fled or maybe they can't find the family, he says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do then. We'll just kill everyone who could possibly be in that age group. Every male child who has been born in the last two years within the vicinity, anywhere near Bethlehem, is going to be put to death. And that night, the soldiers are dispatched and the slaughter takes place and the children are literally put to death one at a time throughout the whole region. I don't know when Joseph and Mary got the word about this. Maybe there was a traveler who passed through Egypt and maybe they heard the news that way. Maybe they didn't find out until they got back. 
But somehow, someway, sometime, somebody told them, hey, remember when you got up and ran? Yeah, so because you did that, Herod killed all of our children. We've been weeping in our whole county because all of our sons have been killed. All the babies have been wiped out. And it was because you left. All this guy Joseph had ever done, as far as we know, was said yes to God. All he had done was agreed with what God told him to do, even though it didn't make sense, even though it wasn't his plan, he just did what God told him to do, and this is where he finds himself, in Egypt, away from his entire support system, carrying the weight of the fact that hundreds of babies have been killed because of my actions. But eventually the word comes to him, Herod has died, There's another dream, another angel told him it's time to go back. And so he starts to go back and then he gets the word, but don't go back anywhere near Judea because if you go there, Herod's son is now ruling in his place and he's still looking for you. You're gonna have to go somewhere else. So he returns back to Nazareth where he had been briefly in the past in Galilee to start his life all over again there. And of course, that fulfilled a prophecy. You see, there was a prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's in Micah. There's another that said the Savior would come out of Egypt. And then there's a third that said he would be a Nazarene. How can all three of those things be true? Apparently, they can be true this way. If you have to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem where the child is born, and then you go to Egypt where the child has begun to be raised, and then he leaves Egypt, comes out of Egypt, and ends up in Nazareth where he becomes known as Jesus the Nazarene. And all of those prophecies are fulfilled because there is a God who is bigger than Caesar Augustus. And it could only happen if Joseph was willing to play his unimportant, small, unnoticeable role by being obedient to God. So as we get closer to Christmas, I'm willing to bet that more than a few of us would say, I'm not ready for Christmas. I'm just, I don't have time for Christmas this year. I don't have the money for Christmas this year. I am not in the mood for Christmas this year, whatever the case might be. So I told you all of this about Joseph because as we prepare for Christmas, we got some getting ready to do. And in getting ready, there are three things I think we need to remember. The first thing that we learned from Joseph's story is if you want to experience God, you have to be willing to change your plans. If you want to experience God, you have to be willing to change your plans. It is okay to make plans. We all make plans. The scripture says, a man makes his plans and God directs his steps, right? He tells us to make plans. And I know that we all have plans. Some of you had plans as a child, plans as a teenager, plans as a young adult, plans now and you're still trying to make it all work out. I had plans. I was going to play varsity basketball at UCLA, That was my plan. And you look at me now and laugh, but I dedicated my teenage years to making that come true. 
And I was going to play varsity basketball at UCLA. And one other thing, I was going to marry Farrah Fawcett. (laughs) Those were my plans. But God had other plans. God, instead of having me spend those four years at UCLA, I spent those four years in ministry where I learned so many things about God and how to walk with him and how to minister to people on his behalf. It was there that I really learned to preach and developed as a, as a communicator. It was there that I learned how to help people to understand the word of God and apply it in their lives. Those four years that turned out to be so formative in my life and God's plan for me and God's plan that went way beyond my life, those four years I had planned out. And God took my plan and inserted instead his plan. And today I'm so glad he did. I'm not even sure I could have beat out Bill Walton anyway. I'm just saying. Oh, and the wife thing. God gave me a wife who made me forget Farrah Fawcett ever existed. (laughs) What an awesome blessing God has given me. It wasn't my plan. God's plan was so much better. And, and, you know, sometimes we just can't get what we want. But the great philosopher Mick Jagger said, but if you try sometimes, you just might find you get what you need. You walk with God, listen, I'm not going to promise you you're going to get what you want. I will promise you that you're going to have to set aside a whole lot of what you want. And what God does is he takes your heart and he molds it and changes it so that it matches his heart so that the things you want become the things that he wants for you. So you're going to have to be willing to be flexible. You're going to have to be willing to give up your plans. Listen, God's plans don't always make sense to us. God's plans are not always easy for us. God's plans are always best. That was your amen cue. Remember all those hard adjustments in Joseph's life? They were supposed to bring God glory, and that's exactly what they did. It led to the salvation of mankind. Second thing we can learn from this, God knows what you don't know. That's got to help us let go of our plans a little, doesn't it? God knows what you don't know. Can you imagine how confusing all this must have been to Joseph right from the beginning? We can look back on this and see how it worked out. Don't you think Joseph would have loved if he could have just read the book of Matthew? How much easier if he had been able to see where this was all headed, what God was going to do, about the, about the blind that would see and the deaf that would hear and the lame that would walk and the dead that would raise, about the great preaching and the transformational disciple-making and the way Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins. But he didn't see all that. He didn't know all that. He just knew what God called him to do. And, and you know, you may look and say, <clears throat> Well, it was kind of easy for Joseph because an angel appeared to him. Okay, first of all, an angel appeared to him in a dream. How often have you woken up after some bizarre dream and gone, that's reality, I'm going to change everything in my life? That's not what you do, right? The only way that would have happened is if God somehow got a hold of his heart and made it clear that it was real. 
that it was true, right? You say, well, if an angel appeared to me, I would do whatever God said. I would obey God if an angel appeared to me. No, you would not. (laughs) You know how I know? Because you own this book. You and I, we've read this book. And we've seen all kinds of things God wants us to do that we have yet to start obeying. Am I the only one? See, it's not easy to obey God when you don't understand. You just have to know God knows some things that you don't know. And you can trust him. Last thing. God is not interested in blessing your plans. He wants to bless you by including you in his plans. Hear that again. God is not interested in blessing your plans. He wants to bless you. And he does that by including you in his plans. Joseph was in the dark through all this. He had to lay down his plans again and again. But as he did, he got to experience the blessing of walking with God and the abundant life that comes with that. And while Joseph um, doesn't have any lines in the church Christmas play, and while he's the guy standing in the back in the nativity scene, even though he never got to do some of the things he was certainly planning to do with his life, I guarantee you, if you could somehow speak to Joseph today, he would confirm for you that he is so thankful he said yes to God in the things he didn't understand and trusted God in the things he didn't want to do. He would say there's nothing better in life than walking by faith and trusting God to do the miraculous in and through your life. But he didn't learn that truth by doing things his own way and sticking to his own plan. So this Christmas season, take this with you. Number one, what plans do you need to lay aside in order to experience God's plans for your life? And, and when I ask that question, for some of you, there, something jumps immediately to your mind because you've already been grappling with it. You've already been wrestling with it and you know there is something I'm supposed to be laying aside and I have been unwilling to lay it aside. Listen, as long as you cling to what you want, you cannot open your hands to receive what God wants to give you. And so what do you need to lay aside in order to make room for God's plan in your life? Second, what is God calling you to do that you're afraid to say yes to? So it's not just what I have to now say no to in order to align with God, but there are some things I might have to say yes to in order to align with God. And it might be hard to do. It might mean giving up a relationship. It might mean taking a different job or going somewhere that is dangerous or moving out of my comfort zone or, or developing a relationship with a neighbor or forgiving someone who's hurt me. What is God calling you to do that you are afraid to say yes to? And is it possible that your unwillingness to say yes to what you know he's calling you to do is keeping you from experiencing what the Bible calls abundant life? And lastly, what are you missing out on because you're insisting on doing things your own way? And I suppose only God knows the answer to that because God knows what you don't know. But but you must be missing out on something. I, I can tell you, When you look at Christmas through the lens of Joseph's life, you learn that Christmas is about peace. Christmas is about joy. Christmas is about love. Christmas is about hope. Christmas is about salvation. And all of that stuff gets missed if we're unwilling to align our lives with God's. Don't let your plans 
get in the way this Christmas. The title of this sermon is, Do You Have Plans for Christmas? What plans do you need to change to realign with God? Let's pray. God, we come to you as people who have limited understanding, people who deal with a certain amount of fear, people who are confused often by the things that you are saying and doing, even in your word. And yet, Father, people who have been enlightened by you to know that you can be trusted. Father, help us to lay aside our plans and pick up yours. Help us to be willing to say yes to you even when we don't understand why you would call us. Help us, Father, to walk in that abundant life that you sent your son to give us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.